force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep Radio on time, on target. This is episode 464. This man is Jack Murphy. I am Dennis Jones. Welcome, everybody. What's up? First thing I want to get into, we got Cody Perron on today. He's former Marine and a DSS agent. Very excited. He's, a, I believe he's our first DSS agent. I believe correct? so, yeah. So, I'm, I'm actually, I'm positive. Okay, well, not even... 100% positive. Lock it in. We got Cody on. Uh, he's got a book. It's called Agents Unknown, the stories of life as a special agent in the diplomatic security service. I'm sure he's going to be telling some stories from the book that'll translate um, to podcast form, but be sure to pick up the book too, because we're, we're fans of the guests of our show. But first off, um, I want to ask you a little bit about your trip to San Diego, how was it? How yeah, was, how yeah. was your uh, speech? This weekend, it was great. Um, I was invited to come and speak to Chapter 78 of the Special Forces Association in Anaheim, California. And so I took my daughter with me, and we went out there, flew into San Diego, drove up to Anaheim in the morning, and um, gave kind of a, a talk. Maybe a speech is a little bit too, mo- too much uh, to describe it as, but talked a little bit about some of the stuff in my book, talked about... Ranger Battalion and Special Forces, uh, and talked about some of the more controversial stories I've worked on over the years, and uh, which is, you know, the whole thing is a little bit embarrassing because I'm talking to ROGs. Like one of them is a uh, original Special Forces member. Oh damn! Yeah, um, these are guys who served in Vietnam, retired officers, yeah, and sergeant majors. Um, my friend who uh, invited me, John Stryker Mayer, was in Mac V. Sog in Vietnam doing clandestine missions in Laos and Cambodia. So it's like, really, you guys should be telling me about special forces. And I, I take notes, which is usually how it works. But um, John had asked me to come and, and come and talk. And um, I, I, think the, I think people enjoyed it. I think there, there was a group of like maybe 30, uh, 30 people. Um, I think sometimes, you know, I, I like to, I love to hear their stories, but at the same time, I think they like to hear some of the stories from the younger guys because they want to know, you know, what are our guys up to in Iraq and right. Afghanistan and places like that? They want to know what's going on in the force today. Um, so I'm, I'm maybe not the best spokesperson for that, but I, I like to think I did an okay job. And we had a Q&A session. They had lots of questions and comments, and we, we had a very good discussion. I, I was really happy. And I, my only regret is that I wasn't able to spend more time there and really talk to them, each of them uh, individually, and uh, pick their brains a little bit. But it was very a very good event. I was really happy to Cause do Because you, you are a sponge like that. Like you, you soak up all this stuff. So I could imagine. Now, do you... Do you get intim- not intimidated? It's not the right word because I don't think intimidated. But are you uh, are you nervous beforehand? Because you obviously these guys are uh, highly I, decorated. I, I, not not intimidated, but I, I get like little stars in my eyes. Like I okay, get, so I get, like some of these guys are heroes. Yeah, they are heroes. 
Um, there, and I told them that I was like, you guys are my heroes. You know, uh, it's because of you guys, you built the legend that I wanted to become that right, I, wa- like, I wanted to you're be the foundation. Yeah. I wanted to be what they created. So they were my inspiration for joining the military. And, uh, I told them also, I was like, look, I stood on your shoulders. Like we did, you guys built this. And then when nine 11 came, we had something, we weren't starting from scratch. Right. So we were able to deploy special forces teams immediately, uh, for the invasion of Afghanistan which I was not involved in, of course, but I mean, America had a response. We were ready to go because of what these guys had built. And they did it in a time where it was not popular to be in the army and it was not popular to stay in the army. And a lot of these guys came home from Vietnam and they they weren't really treated appropriately. Um, But these guys stayed in throughout the seventies and eighties and nineties. And they created this thing, this, this, uh, you know, special forces and special operations. Which is always um, one of my favorite things to see talking to military people is just the the respect you guys have for the, the previous generations and that they kind of return it to you because we saw stuff. We sure, we're, we're sure you guys have seen stuff like we're all in this together. Like you're fighting, yeah. you're fighting the same fight. We're all under the American flag here. Like I can respect what you've done. Like you said, you guys built this. But at the same time, they're like, well, what are you doing to keep it going? And then you you tell them that side of the story. So it's just mutual respect coming together, which is just an incredible show of just uh, of brotherhood amongst you know military members. It's it's really like as a civilian, it's awesome to see every time. Uh, one of my best friends is a SEAL currently, and anytime he gets around um, other military guys, there's just that unspoken like respect. Like you, you just whether you know whether the guy turns out to be a jerk or whatnot, or whatever. But like at the end of the day you putting your life on the line for, for our freedom. And it's like, thank you. Like you can just, you, you have that bond for life. No, I have, I have reverence for the OGs. Uh, you know, like I said, back in those days, it wasn't popular to be in the military and for them to do that, uh, and to do the things they did, uh, to wear a green hat at the time, Mm -hmm. wasn't a popularity contest. Like they did it because they felt passionate about it and they really believed in what they were doing. Um, so, I mean, it's just incredible. And yeah, I mean, some people want to meet, you know, Dwayne Johnson. I want to meet the guy who was in Vietnam and, and had the antenna shot off of the, his radio, which, which is times. awesome. You know, those are the people I want to meet. And that's why I said, I, I get a little starstruck. I know this sounds like a kiss ass thing to say, and it is, but, uh, it's also true. You know, I love meeting those guys and they have, they have these great stories to tell. And I don't necessarily know they would open up with somebody like me, but you know, you having the experience you have and the background you have, they would have no problem. Like, I mean, after meeting you for five minutes, they're probably just like, hey, look, like, I did X, Y, and Z. And you're like, sometimes, some shit. Sometimes, I mean, but then sometimes they'll hold stuff back. Like I was telling you about, yeah, that, uh, you know, sometimes these guys are just very humble and, and they don't want to talk about that kind of Which thing. Which is, <laughs> you know, you kind of, you respect that too, but at the same time, it's like, just let loose, man. You can't. I'll, I'll tell you though, it, it's there's a very eerie feeling when you talk to somebody and they're telling you about their experiences in the war that they have held inside for 50 years and not told anyone. Yeah. And they're like telling you, like, yeah, yeah, I, I killed somebody in combat, and uh, you know, I went up to the body and it was like 16 year old kid. Uh, you know, he's carrying this rusty AK 47. He had like six rounds of the magazine. And, you know, I always felt bad about that. The kid never had a chance. And it's like, damn, like you're hearing the real deal. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm hearing some real, some just real you talk. telling it. Like, 
I'm sure that guy's voice is, is the equivalent of how you just, and it's just, you can hear the yeah. remorse. Um, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a little remorse and it's a little like, it's either him or me. Like everybody's talking yeah, about that. And, like, that. and that's what it was is that the, he, he was, uh, this gentleman was also in Mac V Sog, uh, a different person. I won't name him, but it was, uh, early, fairly early on in the war. And yeah, he came across this VC and like, it, it was one of those things. Like they saw each other in the jungle and you both, you like, you're both drawn and it's right, like, right. You or me, buddy. Yeah. Um, but I, like, that's some real talk, you know, and, when you, yeah, you and, that, that. and that hits deep. Cause like, yeah. obviously that's never, I've never had an experience like that. So like, well, me neither, you know, me somebody, neither. somebody tells me that and it's, you know, all you can do is just be like, you just listen yeah. like that. That's it. And it's important to tell those stories. Um, oh, absolutely. But, and, and, Cause it adds a human element to, to the war in general, whether it be Vietnam or, or the war on terror we're in right now, like it's people like it's people fighting people at the end of the day. And it, it, that's, Nobody wants to kill somebody like, yeah, and that's why, you know, when I spoke to the special forces association, the first story I opened up with to tell them about was a friendly fire incident I was involved in, in Afghanistan. And, and then I finished it off and I was like, you know, in, in, in the finest army tradition, no shit. That's a true war story. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny, but, but it is, that, that's a true war story. I mean, I'm not proud of it. It's not, um, it's not a story that I even like to tell and nobody would, but I think it's important to, because I think people need to, you know, not that that group particularly needs me to tell them anything about sure. war, but I think it's important to tell that story. And that's why it's in my book, because I, w- I want people to hear the real deal, you know, which is one of the things I respect about you because you, you, you know, obviously you have a decorated career, but you don't just tell the, the good of it. There, there's bad to have, there's especially yeah. war. Yeah. War is inherently bad. Yeah. And we, we owe it, you know, when, when, some, when you write a book like this, like I did, you owe it to the younger generation of guys who are or girls now who are thinking about joining the military. Like you owe it to tell them the whole thing, the yeah. whole deal. And not just, you know, how great you are. Like, you need to tell them the good, the bad, the There's ugly, probably the bad, someone your right? daughter's age who, who when, she, when he or she grows up, they're going to look at you like you looked at like you looked at these men this weekend. Yeah. Um, so on that note, after... Speaking of your daughter. Yeah, she's here next to me. This is another uh, day off from school, so she's here in the studio with us. After we uh, went and spoke to the SFA in Anaheim, we went down to SeaWorld, and we, so we spent the second half of that day at SeaWorld, and then the next day, all of Sunday, pretty much, down at SeaWorld. And um, it was a blast. I think Alice had a good time. We did... Uh, the dolphin encounter, so you get to go up to the pool and feed the dolphin. And, and touch it. And touch it. Do you want to tell people about about meeting the dolphin? Uh, I don't know what to say. Alice, this is your big moment. You never know what to say. You weren't shy five minutes ago. I know. So well, walk me through this, because I've never been to SeaWorld, so you're going to have to literally coach me through this. So you go in here, and, and what do you do? They, they bring you up with, like, what is it, a trainer? Like, uh, they bring up the trainer? You have to get a stamp, and it will say your group. And then they call your group, and then they will tell you, like, and now you touch the dolphin this way or that way, and then blah, blah, blah. And now, do you, get to, do you get to feed them? Yeah. What, what are you throwing them, little fish? Yeah, and jello. Oh, they eat jello. Jello cubes, I did, yeah. I did not know that. Neither did I. <laughs> And the interesting thing about it was that the dolphin's name was Cascade, and the trainer was telling us uh, about how the dolphin is actually a retired Navy dolphin, 
And those are the, there, there's actually an article on our website about this, uh, an old one if you go looking for it. But the Navy has a dolphin and sea lion program, and the dolphins uh, are used for, like, security. Um, they can go and swim around ships and submarines and things like that. And they even have, like, an EOD, like an explosive ordnance disposal job. Like, they can go and uh, mark bombs and things like that for divers to aren't, go remove. Dolphins aren't, like, they're, like, notoriously one of the smartest animals, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. They're, like, smarter than dogs. They're, like, super smart. Um, so the, yeah, the dolphin was a retired sailor, uh, in, enjoying <laughs> Which her, is just a funny sentence. <laughs> enjoying. The dolphin's a retired sailor. <laughs> she was enjoying her, she's enjoying her retirement in SeaWorld. Um, and I guess they have a pretty good life there. The, the, uh, one of the, one of the trainers was saying that in the wild dolphins live to like, uh, mid twenties to mid thirties, but they have dolphins that are live well into their forties because they're, you know, uh, they don't have to worry about predators. They have a veterinarian oh, sure. on, on call. So they're pretty healthy. I, I think that dolphin was fairly old too. And it was nice. It was nice. Wasn't it? She was a very nice dolphin. What yeah. else did you get to see at uh, SeaWorld? Um, stingrays. Oh, do you get to pet them? Yeah. I'm fearful. I wouldn't touch a stingray. What, what did the stingray feel like, Alice? Slimy. Slimy. Yeah, it was. So, uh, I mean, we did, like, everything there was to do at SeaWorld except for the big scary roller coaster. Yeah. And um, the sea lion show. We didn't see. We saw the dolphin show and we saw the orca show, which is pretty cool. Um, and my surprise, which was... The dolphin the, encounter. Yeah. So this was, this was her birthday present. Was going to Sea uh-huh. World. And Satisfactory present. What was it? A good, a yeah. good birthday present. <laughs> yeah. And you know what else? I mean, I was pretty surprised, little girl, that uh, you've come a long way since riding the little kitty coaster in Central Park. You remember that? What? There's a little, there's a little carnival thing in Central Park, and there's a little kitty roller coaster that goes. I know. Like yeah, I know the one. A mile, a mile an hour. Yep. And you used to ride on that. What? What? Um, but when we get to SeaWorld, there's this huge, um, like steel coaster called the Mantis and she's oh, like, and you conquered your fear. She's like, I want to go on that. And I was like, seriously, really? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we go up there and she's like, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Not for me. And we go on the roller coaster and, uh, it took her like five minutes to catch her breath. She's like, that was so exciting. <laughs> the, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> And then the next day, you wanted to do the log flume ride. Yeah. Which one did you like better? Uh, I don't know. The roller coaster or the one where you get wet? Wet. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, what was that show? Step by Step on, uh, on like, TGI Friday. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little younger than you, but I feel like on, when TGI Friday, whatever it was on, ABC or or. CBS or whatever they had, it was like Family Matters with Urkel. Oh yeah, uh, Step by Step was Patrick Duffy. I want to say. Oh, I don't remember. But in the uh, in the show open, they like they're coming down a log flume and like Patrick Duffy and I think it was Suzanne Summers was in the show. Oof, weird memory I got here. And they're like they're on the the boardwalk, like whatever, like the overpass, and they're all waving. Everybody's like trying to wave them to get them off, and they didn't get off, obviously. Log flume comes down. They're soaked, and then they're all like holding their ice cream cones, and they're like, "Well, we tried telling you." I think that was it. I was so. uh, I was one of those guys. I bought the picture at the end of that ride. Oh, you have to because the the expression on uh, my daughter's face is hilarious. She's like, <laughs> like eyes wide, mouth open. Oh my god! 
The, whoever invented that idea was like, we better throw some cameras on here. This is a gen- gold mine. genius. Gold Between mine. like yeah. the Disney, like whatever rides there, and like every picture you can always there. I go to Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. I, with shouldn't, that. Have said, I shouldn't have said the D word. That's my bad. Here, here's the thing with that. I took her to Disneyland. She's already been to Disneyland. Oh. She just doesn't remember any of it. Apparently, <laughs> you were like what four years old? Four. Yeah, maybe you were four. Four's old enough eight. to remember. Yeah, you're eight now, but you were four at the time. And that uh, was half a lifetime ago, Dad. Four, four, maybe she was five, <laughs> four or five. I'm still eight. And uh, I took her, uh, like, we spent a whole day at Disneyland. Disneyland or World? Which one's in Florida? Ooh, World. Disney World. Yeah, we were down there in Florida. So she did that, and I have pictures to prove it, but apparently she doesn't <laughs> remember any of it. She was doing a school project on Walt Disney. It was like, Dad, I want to go to Disneyland. I'm like, what the hell? You've been to Disneyland. <laughs> but why can't I go again? Uh, maybe you can. Ask your mommy. But mommy <laughs> said it's too much money. Yeah, well, your mommy's probably right about that. But why can't we go for a half of a day? Maybe one day. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe one day. Hey, I was four, five. Yeah, we'll see, princess. If somebody wants to, if if Walt, if somebody at the Walt Disney Company wants to is listening to this podcast and wants to help Jack out, we are all ears. Oh well, hey, on, on that <laughs> on that on that note, actually, I should mention this because SeaWorld has a veterans discount. Oh, very nice. V- veterans and up to like three of their guests get in for free. Oh, that's not a discount. That's free. Yeah. That's a big yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. difference. It's free. So you go on the SeaWorld website and you send in like your uh, VA identification. Mm-hmm. You, there's a couple different ways you can ID yourself with like a DD-214 or you can use your VA ID card and they verify that you are who you say you are and then they send you the tickets. So, That's awesome. So we got in for free both days, and you know you just have to pay for like food, or if you want to do like extra things yeah, like yeah. the dolphin, uh, the dolphin encounter. So I mean, SeaWorld's really cool about that. Shout out SeaWorld, good, good for them. Is that your dolphin, Alice? You're supposed to be thanking me for my service right yeah. now. <laughs> what, what happened? Yeah. What? She's here making dolphins. SeaWorld sea wouldn't have had the same experience without without your father's service. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your best dolphin for real? Uh-huh. It needs work. Yeah. Yours has laryngitis. Daddy has laryngitis <laughs> right now from uh, the uh, the air in the hotel room just like destroys me. Alice is none the none the worse for wear, but I'm all messed up. Yeah. Kids with their immune systems, man, they're they're indestructible. I told you we uh, after SeaWorld on Sunday we get on the airplane at uh, yeah this is good like for 10, her like ten fifty ten fifty at night eleven o'clock we take off we land in New York uh, five thirty in the morning we go home and I'm like Alice do you want to go to sleep or do you want to go to school and she's like I want to go to school so she slept for like three hours after the whole SeaWorld extravaganza you know giving the dolphins some love and all that. Gets on the airplane, sleeps on my lap for like three hours, and then wants to go to school. And she spent the whole day at school, and uh, and then I went and picked her up. And you're like, you were up till like ten o'clock last night, like wh- like running around. Yeah, <laughs> I- I'm still tired. I'm tired right now. I, yeah, I, I could. I'm not. Can we go to the playground after this? Yeah, we can go to the playground. Yay. Uh, okay. What, what else on the agenda, uh, before uh, we move on to the interview? The only thing I want to bring up and I, and I hate doing this, but the, you, you retweeted an article this weekend about, um, Oh boy, my retweets. Oh, you know, your retweets are second to none. You're, you're uh, quickly uh, becoming one of my favorite follows on Twitter. Um, 
it was an article on the New Republic, the sum of all beards. And yeah, I just yeah. I felt your sarcasm glistening through <laughs> the Twitter sphere again. You have an incredible knack for it that just hits me right in my humor bone. Um, the the subtitle is How Did Facial Hair Win American Men's Hearts and Minds? Thank the War on Terror. Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember how I came across this article. Oh, I think a friend of mine posted it up uh, somewhere, and I, and I saw it. And uh, yeah, the author Adam Weinstein is a huge fan of mine. Um, <laughs> say that tongue in cheek. He he actually hates my guts, and I'm not a fan of him either. Um, so that's that's just is what it is. Uh, but I, uh, I I I now you're gonna say because I would say, but did you read the article? And now I have to concede. I did not really give a thorough reading to this article. I just kind of skimmed a over it. A light skim. A light skim. But I, I, you don't need to read the article. I did because it, like. Oh, you're torturing yourself. Yeah. No, it, it was. It was. It, it seemed you. I finished it and you just. I looked at myself and I was like, wait, was that. Was that supposed to be sarcastic? The whole. The yeah. Whole is, it, like, is it satire? It, is it satire? And I don't think it was, but it just. But you can't tell. No, and which I mean, if that was their intentions, then great, great piece. But yeah, I, yeah. I don't think that was the case. Um, but the beard phenomenon has been going on for a while. You and I both. I mean, and that and that's why I brought it up is because um, I de- I have I have a beard. You obviously have a beard as well. Um, what is your, what is your reasoning? Is it because of your <laughs> laziness? And that's that was my thought when I read the piece. I was like, you can't tell me that because of the war on terror and people. In, in the military or law enforcement, they go overseas and they see these um, these Muslims and, and whoever else religiously has to, is not forced, but, but grows their beard because of that. Hey, that looks like a good idea. I'm going to come back to America, reassimilate myself, and that's what I'm going to do. No, it's because yeah. I don't want to shave. That's why I have a beard. Yeah, well, I pointed out, too, like the whole like phenomena of the beard coming back into American culture, that's really related back to the bear subculture. Which was your second favorite that, tweet of the that weekend. Was that, yeah, it, can, it comes out of homosexual uh, subculture. It really does. And, and you, can, uh, you can Google bears and find out about that. Um, and hey, man, you, you do you. Um, <laughs> yep. But the average uh, hipster in... Uh, you know, New York or Seattle, they don't know anything about bearded special operator bros in no. Afghanistan. You know, it, it, I really do believe that it came out of uh, out of gay culture rather than military culture. But to, well, certainly gay culture and then hipster culture. Like they, I mean, I feel like flan, which which sucks for me because I'm not a hipster, but I'm a big man, and the flannel beard combo pushes me through from the fall <laughs> to the winter to the spring, really. And whether it be the the bear culture, which you know I could get down with, I, I suppose, in a, in a different life, I could, I'd, be, I'd make a great bear. But I'm not a hipster, so it just, I hate the, the negative connotation that people say. They're like, "Oh, nice flannel," where, where you grind your homebrew coffee. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, this. Uh, I, I mean, first and foremost, I was really impressed that these two bros who wrote this this article were able to squeeze an entire article out of. <laughs> Soft, soft guys having beards. I mean, that's impressive. You know, no it, matter it, where you stand politically, uh, that's impressive. I wrote an article years ago, um, like probably four or five years ago, called uh, "It's Something Like How Hipsters Stole the Operator Beard," <laughs> but but it's only like three four hundred words, and it's a joke. It really is a joke, and I, that's I mean, what it should be. I wrote it as a gag, um, but these guys like seriously uh, are using a beard. Uh, as the lens through which we see American imperialism worldwide, uh, it's like, eh, uh, you haven't convinced me. You nope. haven't convinced me. 
Good try. Good try. <laughs> you know, it was a valiant effort, but I, I'm not convinced. But I, I had I had to mention it just because because we're both bearded brethren. Also, um, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the accident that happened. Um, we record Tuesday, so Monday. Uh, few blocks from here. Yeah. There was a, um, we record out of New York. I don't know if everybody knows that, but we're in New York City. Um, and a helicopter crashed on f- between 51st and 52nd and 7th Ave. 787 7th Ave, which is, where where are we? We're at Lex and what's across street? 40. Oh, wasn't it like 48th Street? Or we, uh, whatever we are, but we're, we're, clo- we're closer to like 42nd. We, I could walk to this place. I would be. I'd have a light sweat going, and oh, I am. And I'm a man uh, of, it's Seventh Avenue. So yeah, we've between got between Fifty First and Fifty Second. So it was. It was within striking distance for us, and it was. Um, hold on, I got to scroll. Great radio here. <laughs> um, it was a real estate company founded by Italian-born investor Danielle Bodini. Um, so the FAA didn't. It what, what was it? Uh, FAA didn't handle the flight, which means who did? That's weird. Right. I, I mean, I don't know anything about helicopters, but somebody. I, I thought the FAA would handle, like, flight paths and stuff like that. You don't just, I, I mean, I don't think you just take a helicopter and, like, take off. And, fly, and fly over Manhattan? No, you can't. No. <laughs> Probably not. No, you can't. But uh, unfortunately, the only, the only casualty was the pilot. His name was Tim McCormick. Yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, I guess there'll be a, a whole, like, investigation, but it sounds like maybe they had mechanical difficulties and the pilot put the helicopter down on the, uh, on the rooftop. Yeah, you he, know, tried, yeah a, he tried to land on the roof. Um, but good on him for putting it down in a, in a fairly safe place. Yeah, I mean. Rather than going, going down into the crowd down on in, the street. In New York City, there's not a lot of options. Yeah. Unless you're, yeah. Unless you're pulling a Sully... Uh, landed in the Hudson, which I don't know if that's an option with a helicopter. I mean, who knows? I don't know. You can ditch it, see, yeah. Obviously, you would have wished he could have done that then, but... Uh, maybe he couldn't even make it Right, yeah, like yeah. maybe just he had 10 seconds to react, and here's where we're going down. But uh, sorry for the loss of Tim McCormick's life. That was... I just I wanted to talk about it because we're, we're here in New York. I mean, if we had recorded yesterday, if you guys complain when fire trucks run by just willy-nilly, imagine what we... What, what, the recordings that that would have been heard yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That would have been some incredible radio. So I haven't seen many crashes, so that was just something I wanted to touch on. And it took place at 132. So literally Crazy. like right right in the heart of our yeah. of our recordings. Right next have. door. So it would have been something. So sorry for that. Um that was a little dour, but you can listen to the first half about sea lions and, and dolphins <laughs> cheer you back up. Uh, in the meantime, the show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men by men, of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit crateclub.us for an exclusive promotion for you, the listeners, of 20% off your subscription. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we're not sure how long we're going to keep the promotion live. So go to crateclub.us, use the coupon code SOFREP, and get 20% off any subscription. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SOFREP, S-O-F-R-E-P, for 20% off. Sign up now. And with that, we're going to welcome on Cody Perron, the former Marine and DSS agent, also the author of Agents Unknown, True Stories of a Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Services. Without further ado, here's Cody. Joining us now, former Marine and U.S. Department of State's Diplomatic Security Service, Cody Perron. 
He is the current C-founder of Fidelis Global Group. It's a security risk management firm. And you're also the author of Agent Unknown. It's true stories of life as a special agent in the diplomatic security service. So, Cody, first off, thank you for coming on. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, as we were saying, uh, I was saying before we got started uh, recording, you're actually a, a listener request. Um, I had not heard of your book previously, and I'm glad I have now. Um, because DSS is one of those agencies that kind of gets, um, I don't know, like people don't really think about it or are aware of it unless you're in that world. Um, and not too many people have written about it either. Um, I think yours is one of the very few books out there on the subject. And it actually dovetails, I think, quite well with uh, Tom Pacora, who was uh, did security for the CIA. Um, and you were doing the same job in a lot of ways for the State Department. So maybe for the listeners, um, if you could first get into what is DSS? Yeah, no problem. And you hit it on the head. You know, not a lot of people know about us. Uh, we, we often get overshadowed by, by uh, Secret Service or FBI. And we do a little bit of both. And, and you mentioned CIA there. We, when we're overseas, we work frequently with CIA, particularly in, in, uh, in, in the, the high threat areas and some of the, the areas I highlighted in my book. But the DSS, uh, Diplomatic Security Service, is the law enforcement, uh, the federal law enforcement branch of the United States Department of State. Many people don't even know we exist, uh, and that's because the State Department is the foreign, is a foreign policy branch, not like, for example, Justice, which is a law enforcement branch, or Homeland Security, which is a, a law enforcement and, and security branch. So State Department often gets overlooked. However, as a special agent, we have all the same rights and authorities of uh, FBI agent, DEA agent, ATF agent, you name it. And you're bad. Except we have a different focus. And we're bad. Yeah, we fly. You can fly on a plane with a, with a, with a weapon. You name it. We have all the all the rights and responsibilities and duties uh, of of any uh, federal federal law enforcement agent in the United States. Uh, where we're a little different is now we do have our focuses uh, on federal investigations. FBI is a very broad spectrum. There's no doubt the lead. Uh, we do more uh, of fraud with uh, investigations of fraud into uh, State Department documents. So whether it's passport fraud, visa fraud. A lot of that has a nexus to human smuggling, uh, smuggling, human trafficking, um, uh, indentured servitude, um, and, and things like that. So that's one component of what we do, federal investigations. Uh, we're also, the second component is we are uh, uh, responsible for the, the protection and security of the U.S. Secretary of State, whoever that might be, wherever they are in the world. So same as Secret Service does uh, for uh, the president and vice president and their family, uh, we do the same for the Secretary of State and also visiting foreign dignitaries. So people don't really know uh, often, unless you're in this world, that if a foreign dignitary below the below the presidential level, so uh, you know, a minister of defense, for, for example, Israel, uh, comes over uh, and all these different countries, we take uh, ownership of that and we protect them here on the ground uh, in the United States. And it's quite busy. There's a lot of them that come over. I mean, they, they, they come over for a number of different reasons. Uh, our third component is uh, we, we manage security programs overseas. So uh, about half of a DS agent's career is spent overseas. I spent a little less than 10 years in, and exactly half was, was spent overseas. And that's by choice for me in, in that case because I was a, a new you know, mid-level agent. Um, and what we do is we manage everything. We do more. We can do you know, some things that are more mundane, whether it's management of a local guard force or surveillance detection team or administrative and personnel security, background investigations, 
kind of a boring aspect, but then you have the more exciting aspect, counterintelligence uh, uh, management uh, of that program, counterterrorism uh, work. Um, and then even more uh, so from that component, the, the, what I enjoyed the most was going over to high threat areas. So we're in, in every uh, high threat area you can imagine, whether, you, whether it's a U.S. representation, a U.S. embassy, consulate, or mission. So I spent 27 months in Iraq doing high threat protection, basically taking dignitaries out, you name it, from the Iranian to the Syrian border up to the Turkish border when I was in northern Iraq, all over Baghdad when I was in Baghdad. And, uh, and we have these jobs, these high, we call them high threat protection jobs, uh, uh, in, in Pakistan and Yemen and Afghanistan. And there we get to work closely with, uh, you guys probably heard of Blackwater. I know you've heard of Blackwater sure. before. Uh, there's, uh, most of the Blackwater guys came over to another group called Triple Canopy now. They fall under uh, Constellus. And, uh, we work closely with them. So we'll have, uh, a, a special agent that's the agent in charge of a motorcade of about 15 to 20 guys. And then all the other guys are, are veterans uh, of the military. Some some are, are law enforcement uh, with no military experience, but you have to have extensive uh, law enforcement experience. And we take diplomats out. We take congressional delegations when they come to visit these high threat areas, and we uh, we protect them all over uh, these hostile areas. Uh, that's a long summary, but but that's uh, that's what we do, and uh, you know a lot of people don't know about it. You do you also do uh, security for ambassadors and embassies? Yeah, we do. Uh, we're responsible, overall responsible for the security of the ambassador and the consulate or the co- or the, the embassy compound. Um, it takes a certain uh, threat level in a country for us to do to, to do uh, like a PSD on an ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, I can think of, of the Philippines, for example, Colombia. Of course, we have we have our agents. Uh, in addition to uh, local police uh, or bodyguards that support us in, in doing that. There are some, if you go to, I'd say, places in Western Europe, uh, and I don't want to give up any information, but there are areas, you know, where it might not be as serious. You just have a couple of local, hi- locally hired bodyguards that would, uh, that would go with them. So, but ultimate security and responsibility and protection of the ambassador and all U.S. diplomats falls uh, to DS special agents. And, and I'll add one note, guys. Uh, you know, this, this is a, there's a misconception for those of us in the industry that think that FBI is the senior uh, law enforcement agents uh, just about anywhere. And, you know, when it comes to U.S. security and law enforcement, and when it's overseas at a U.S. diplomatic facility, the diplomatic security special agent in charge overseas, known as the regional security officer, it's kind of a title we have there, is the uh, lead law enforcement agent, uh, you know, to the, to the, to the mission and the U.S. ambassador. I mean, one example where things went sideways, uh, where I, I, there were DSS personnel involved, was at Benghazi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were involved. Um, that was, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've read the report, the, the internal report, and uh, I, I don't know the guys that were there. I know friends of friends that know them. And they kind of got a bad rap, you know, when you get to, <laughs> to 13 hours in Benghazi. Uh, but, you know, when you're a hump agent, we, you know, one of the just, one of the guys on the ground, you do what you're told and you go down there. And, and it's unfortunate that they were underprepared and not any fault of their, of their own. Uh, but they were given a task and, and they were sent to an area that was just not as secure. But, uh, yeah, th- th- there were several agents, uh, in Benghazi that were, that were, uh, involved in that attack. Yeah. And how quickly it goes from being, you know, a, a personal security detail to being outright combat. I mean, that night they were all in combat like soldiers. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it happens frequently. It's happened in Afghanistan. It happened, uh, there's a story in my book where, where we were under attack. Uh, a V-bit hit the compound April 17th, 2015. And, uh, you know, ISIS had, at one point, it pushed up to eight miles of us. And, uh, you know, it's the same type of situation. We were fortunate that we, we that it was a V-bit only. We didn't know that for the first few hours because we were taking friendly fire from the locals, basically, uh, shooting over the, the what, roofs of cars. Was this in uh, Erbil? building. This is in Erbil, yeah, yeah Erbil, northern Iraq. But uh, it, it, yeah, it can turn. It can, you know, it's it's quick. It can happen quickly. Um, we do get training, uh, additional training to go out uh, to these high threat uh, areas. So you know, it's an eight month pipeline to get just be a special agent, and you do another. I think these days it's another four months in high threat tactical training, where you have, you know, our instructors are former SF, former. Team guys that they come out and, and train us up, and you know, and they send us on out. Can you tell us about some of the different areas you worked in? I mean, you mentioned Erbil, you mentioned Iraq. Um, what, are, what are some of the hairier places you worked, and what were the particular security challenges there? Yeah, those were the hairiest spots. Uh, I, you know, I, I did some time in Kenya, a very short time, um, and, and every country has their unique situations that make it hairy. You know, there's this counterintelligence issues in some countries and you have to be on your toes for that. Uh, but the scarier ones are, are the, I guess the more disconcerting where you, you, you may at some point think you might not get out. Uh, those were my two tours in Iraq. Um, and Erbil was, was, oh, there's some situations in, 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 in Baghdad. Uh, Baghdad is such a, a, a machine and we had so many security staff there that the compound getting overrun or attacked is, 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 uh, is not likely. So Erbil, uh, what I'll tell you is that, uh, it was August, 2014 when ISIS had taken over Mosul mm-hmm. or a little bit before August. And they started, you know, all, all, all the reports were telling us that they don't want to have, they didn't want to deal with the Peshmerga and come up to Northern Iraq. Cause you, if you know, Peshmerga is a, it's a different animal when it comes to the Iraqi army. And uh, the analysts were wrong. They made a turn towards their bill. Yep. Uh, they took over the oil fields in Kirkuk. Uh, they were in Kalak uh, uh, or Aski Kalak, which is in, in uh, a couple other places that pushed up. They pushed up to about eight, uh, eight miles to where we were. I remember they were getting like and, within artillery range. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were close. Um, we had... 38 shooters on the compound, uh, and they had hundreds. I won't get the exact numbers, but they had hundreds that reported coming our way. And uh, I woke up. I got a phone call in the middle of the night uh, from uh, guys over at the Intel, over at the Intel compound. And uh, they said, you need to check your high side, your classified email. And as I did, one, I met one of my bosses. He said, go on the rooftop, see what's going on. Again, it's just 2 in the morning, and I, I went out there, and all I saw was taillights. Heading north. Holy um, shit! Yeah, it was a, it was a eerie feeling. Taillights heading north, and the two <sighs> gas stations you could see through binos uh, were were filled. We're just lined, backed <sighs> up. People were getting gas and heading out of there. And here we are. No, none of my team knew it at the time, so I called up my kind of my right hand man and said, "We need to get him prepped, you know, to to, uh, to fight if we need to." Wow. Um, and it's a whole story about it in the book. It's called ISIS at the Gates. Um, and where we're uh, basically making preparations to uh, defend ourselves again with 38 shooters, 
um, and uh, destroying classified and, and doing you know what it takes to, to get on out of there. We were fortunate, or I was fortunate. I, I was I, I headed up the ground team there, uh, and we have as, as special agents we have different assignments. So we had six of us there. There was the boss, the deputy, and four of us uh, mid level guys. And uh, I was in charge of protective ops, and then the ground uh, basically the ground setup uh, as as this was was happening. And um, yeah, we started making moves. But what, what was great is uh, you know. Uh, we, we learned our lessons from Benghazi and one of the guys over at the, uh, the, the CIA compound, this is what I say when I say the Intel compound was, uh, was a former uh, Marine as well. So he and I hit it off. I was a, a basic infantry Marine, a grunt, and he was a recon guy. And, uh, he came over. I said, Hey, we need to, we need to talk. <laughs> Obviously he saw the report, so they sent it to us. And, uh, he came on over and, uh, we coordinated, you know, uh, a evac plan and a, and a plan to defend ourselves. And, you know, if we had to fall back to them, they had a, they had a, a, a bigger contingent to, uh, to help us defend ourselves if we needed, but they couldn't respond to us. We would have had to get to them basically. Um, so it, it was, a uh, you know, when you can sit back and think about, Hey, they're right. You know, they're, yeah. they're right at the, at the gates and they're coming closer. It's, it's much more disconcerting than if it just happens. Because if it just happens, all your preparation, everything just kind of kicks in, and and it has happened, and we and we did, and we responded appropriately. When you're sitting there laying in bed, you know, for two hours a night trying to get some sleep, knowing that the next forty eight you may not, uh, it's a it's a it's a bit it's a bit challenging for everyone involved. And, and keep in mind, we're not just defending ourselves. Like if you're a military unit, you just got to fight for yourselves. You're defending a hundred fifty or so non-combatants, mm-hmm. civilian diplomats that aren't used to this environment, that can't carry a weapon. And there's 38 of you. Right. So then just to add to it, you know, this panic that overcomes these people, you try to limit the information you give, but you got to give some, right. Because you don't want to scare them. You got to find, yeah, you got to find that balance. And then, you know, it gets out and you, you got people that have sent mass emails to the rest of the staff that basically of the effect that they're coming over the walls when they weren't, but just getting people into hysteria. Uh, and, and so it was, a, it was a balance in, in a number of different ways from non-combatants to, you know, getting the, the shooters prepped and ready and, you know, having rotations and everyone fed and just, you know, having weapons placed in the right areas, which we had predetermined, but, you know, you want to reinforce that where you can. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was, you asked about the Harrier situation. That was, that was probably the hairiest one that, that, uh, that I can think of that was really concerning to me. And uh, just to add some context for people who don't know, I mean, Erbil is a huge city. Um, They will tell you, the people there will tell you Erbil is the oldest city in the world. And I mean, it's not like uh, Mosul, for example. Uh, Erbil is fairly modern and built up. There are parts of it that look like Dubai or something like that. Um, a lot of commercial commercialization and shopping malls and all sorts of stuff. And that ISIS came within miles of it is uh, wild. And that was also the time, I think, when the United States government was finally like, okay, ISIS, we've had about enough of you. And the airstrikes started to come. Yeah, you are, you know, right on the nose. Um, there, were, there, were, there were there were malls out there. There's movie theaters. Uh, now, they, they have their, their areas that are just as bad as well, poorer areas. But as compared to, to the rest of Iraq, it's definitely yeah. an upgrade. Um, and, and they are more capable. Uh, 
but they weren't receiving, uh, you know, to get, I guess, a little more in the weeds. They weren't receiving the support and the funding from the international community mm-hmm. that, um, that, that they should have been at the time. Um, and they were sending some of their soldiers to the, to the front lines. And there's two elements. There's the Peshmerga, which is their army, and then uh, another group called Zervani, which Zervani. are like their internal security service. Yeah. And they were sending those guys, and I had a, you know, uh, Zervani worked for us. We had 90 of them that worked for us in our protective ops section. And they were telling me, hey, my, my cousin went to the front line with 11 rounds. 11 rounds to defend himself and had to buy their own ammo. Well, you know, part of that also um, is that GOI was getting money um, and they were supposed to pay certain amounts of money to the Kurds to pay their guys, but mm-hmm. GOI wasn't handing over the cash. Absolutely. Yeah, they're skimming off the top. Yeah. And as, a, as any, you know, as a recognized nation, uh, whether it be the U.S. or any other nation, you, you can't just go give directly to the Kurds because, you know, the prime minister of Iraq is the prime minister of Iraq. And even though the, the North has kind of its own culture and its, its own government, it's still, it's still part of Iraq. Although the Kurds wouldn't like to, to tell you that they want to yeah, yeah. be Kurdistan, and, and they and they and they and they are different, uh, you know. But but the, yeah, they were skimming off the top, and they just weren't getting the the, the money they needed. And at the time, same time, Baghdad was under uh, was was there was under siege as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, you had fast teams from the Mute over in Baghdad, and this is in the, the book as well. And you know, we we got comms with them, and kind of like you need to keep an eye on us as well because we're a lot smaller and we have a lot less resources. And they did. Uh, you know, eventually we had a ton of military on the ground there. But at the time when it was happening, we had none. And to your point with the, the airstrikes, uh, just, just in the right, just the right time, I woke up in the morning and heard them in the distance. And, uh, you know, uh, reports on the news were, were showing that they were, they were backing up and they were held at bay. I think they backed up to about, uh, behind the city of Mockmore. And if I remember correctly, uh, it was about 20, 25 miles or so where they stayed behind kind of that line, but they still surrounded it. That's surrounded us, but they had a, about a 180 degrees uh, from the South, the, the, the West Southwest South. And then, and then the East or Southeast, they were uh, just waiting, you know, and sure enough, uh, you know, a little bit less than a year later, uh, we got attacked. They got inside the city of Reveal and, uh, you know, attacked the compound. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of people, I think, don't really understand like how bad things got. And a lot of the quote-unquote experts were saying, oh, well, ISIS will never take Baghdad. And it's like, well, yeah, before that, you were saying they'd never take Mosul. And you saw how that went down. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah, what I learned these days is anyone can call themselves an expert. If you got other people saying you're an expert, and <laughs> the experts are the ones that told us, so just like you said, that they they weren't definitely, maybe they weren't coming to Baghdad, but they definitely weren't coming to Erbil and, you know, uh, Mosul fell and it just went downhill from there. Yeah. And at the so. time, nobody knew, like really nobody, to be honest, knew how that stuff was going to play out. And, um, I guess it's, it's a good thing that uncle sugar got involved and started sending in F 18 strikes, um, because it kept ISIS from, you know, going any further. A lot of damage was done in the meantime, but you know, I- I'm glad you guys didn't have to fight it out. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> so am I. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it started, it, it, he could have done something sooner, no doubt about that. You know, it is what it is. We did get some of the, you know, we got the cream of the crop that came into our area after that. We got uh, SF groups, ODAs mm-hmm. came out. Um, 
bunch of uh, line line uh, units from infantry marines, uh, some recon marines for QRF. We were doing they were doing ops on Mount Sinjar, um, you know, humanitarian relief, and so we got the best of the best. And, and again, one of my duties I was fortunate was because I had the military experience was uh, liaison with all these different groups. And, and, uh, and it, as a DS agent, that's, uh, you know, as a DS agent and a former Marine, that's, that's a, that's a dream job, you know, getting to, to live the life of a diplomat, carry a gun and, <laughs> and do some cool things and, and, uh, and get to go out with these guys on occasion to, to do some fun stuff, you know? So, um, yeah, it was, and, it was a, good, it was a you- great tour. My, you mentioned that VBID that went off outside the uh, consulate. I think that happened like maybe like a week or two before I was in her bill doing a, a reporting at the time. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure when you were there, but it was April. If it, was, it was around April 2015. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's when it happened. Yep. Yeah. I, I was down in Kirkuk yeah. after that with the Pesh covering this offensive they did as, as they were pushing out outside the city limits. Yeah, then that's right. That's right around the right time. Uh, when it happened and it was, I mean, it was, uh, you know, things were going on. They weren't in the news the, the whole time. I'm sure you guys, you know, could imagine you just, you know, we, we would have people come in random people telling us that ISIS took over this, come bomb them. They're in my house. And yeah, you know, you gotta, some of it's accurate, some of it's not. Uh, and we're dealing with also with, with other human issues. I mean, one, the, the way the book starts out, actually my, my the prologue talks about, I'm, I'm up in Northern. I got a, I got dropped off by special operations forces. Uh, and I, I jumped in with a, an army Intel guy and a, and my interpreter and I got a taxi. I'm getting whipped around that taxi to go meet a United, to go to United Nations camp to interview uh, the first female ISIS American hostage. Uh, I'm sorry, two individual individuals that were held with her with Kayla Mueller. Oh yeah. The first female uh, ISIS American hostage. And they had Intel. No one had heard anything from Kayla, uh, for about a year till we got the intel and went on out there and it, and it's, it was great as I say it was great but I can talk about it cuz my boss at the time knew that we needed a bunch of resources to help facilitate her rescue so we left it unclassified uh my report that I wrote was unclassified um, so basically you know I got to tell a little bit about it and um but my point being is not only her there were several Americans that are out there and and people think you know mm-hmm. Americans born on American soil but there are other Americans that come here you know, uh, especially Kurds, people from Northern Iraq come over and they get, uh, their citizenship and they come back to their country. And sometimes they want to marry, you know, someone from their culture. And we had several people that when ISIS were pushing, were literally calling us on the phone. The United Nations camp was calling us on the phone saying, Hey, you know, these people ran, they left everything except their phone and wow. ISIS is chasing them down in trucks. And you could hear them when they're on the phone sometimes, you know, and we would get it a number of ways. They would call our local Zervani and they say, Mr. Cody, and you take this phone call, and I take it. And I'm literally talking to a guy that, you know, barely speaks English, uh, you know, saying that he's running, and I hear him huffing and puffing from ISIS. I mean, the the most rewarding professional tour, but the most intense in every in every regard. And you know? Kayla was, if if I recall correctly, I mean, she was reported killed in an airstrike later on. She was. I had since left, uh, but she was. I believe it was in that. Uh, ISIS said, or their claim was that it was in the Jordanian airstrike uh, that hit them, um, and she was reported killed. I don't know. We're confident she was killed, whether it was by a Jordanian airstrike or other means. You know, I'm not sure. But, yeah, she she perished. Wow, that's terrifying stuff. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you is by comparison to Iraq and, and some of these crazy situations you found yourself in, what was it like working in cities like Moscow and Beijing? Yeah, so, well, Moscow, I was a young Marine there. I was still officially, oh, okay. uh, yeah, I was a young, oh God, yeah, I was a young Marine there. Uh, and that was uh, 20, nearly 20 years ago. Um, and, and, and that's when I learned about being a DS special agent because we worked directly for them. We're one of the only, the, the Marine Embassy, they call it Marine Corps Embassy Security Group, is one of the only uh, DOD elements that falls under uh, civilian operational control. So DS agents basically, uh, you know, uh, are, are operationally in charge of the Marines there. Now, granted, uh, Marines are going to be Marines, and if they see something needs to be done in, in the event of an attack, they'll, They'll do what they have to do, right? Uh, and that's what we always said. Uh, I was fortunate to have done both, so I had a, a, a good, a great relationship with the the Marines at different posts. Um, in Beijing, uh, in Beijing, I was an agent. I only, I only did a, a couple months there, uh, but in, in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, I did two years. Oh wow! Uh, actually, yeah, and I actually it's another great experience. Um, I got to bring in so the last Marine uh, Embassy detachment that was in Saigon was there during the fall of Saigon and they had never returned, uh, to the South of Vietnam. They had, we had one in Hanoi for many years. And for, for listeners, uh, Marine embassy guards are responsible for protecting us diplomatic facilities around the world. At one point they weren't at every diplomatic facility for a number of reasons, whether it be a relationship with the local government, with the host government or, uh, resources, right? A number of reasons. Uh, after Benghazi, there was a mandate by Congress to put uh, Marines at just about every uh, embassy and consulate in the world. And uh, in Saigon, or in what's now called Ho Chi Minh City, uh, I was I was there to bring in for it was you know since the fall, so it was uh, April 30th, 75, 74 was the fall. Regardless, uh, I was there to 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 help facilitate. Uh, uh, bringing that detachment in. And it was historic because the Marines hadn't, you know, since the fall of Saigon, no Marines, active duty Marines had been on the ground in, uh, in the South of Vietnam. So small things like that, uh, are exciting as well. You know, you can be, can, can become a part of history, uh, and, and working in those posts, those traditional posts, it's a great respite from, from being in high threat posts. Um, the, 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 the work is, is sometimes more mundane, but, um, you know, I had everything from a, 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 a asylum seeker from I think he was from North Korea that tried to run his motorbike into <laughs> into the compound. He smashed into the door. They they you know they grabbed him. Any other environment, a high threat environment, that guy would have been shot long before he got even close enough. Um, we had a, a you know unfortunate death on the compound, an accidental death that I had to investigate. Yikes! Uh, several threats there in July 4th. Uh, we did an international refugee return. Uh, most of these are in the book, by the way. Um, and uh, so, you know, you get a, a good bit. It's just a different type of action, I guess you could say. Um, and your day-to-day is more uh, procedural, procedural, mundane, um, uh, more liaison, more management, supervisory uh, activities. Um, but it, it gives you a good foundation you know, and, and there are always things that pop up. You're literally like the local sheriff uh, <laughs> uh, around because there's no other, you know, some of them places don't have a, a, a you know, whether it be a Homeland Security uh, agent or a, or a FBI agent or you name it. So 
you know, and, and again, we're responsible well, for, for their staff. So. Let, let's say there's an employee of the embassy and they get in trouble in downtown Hanoi with a bunch of hookers and end up in prison. I mean, that, that's one of those things that falls on you, that you're the one that has to go and sort all that out. <laughs> hey, man, it happens. It happens <laughs> uh, <laughs> frequently in a, in a lot of these places. Yeah, we're, we're, so we have the relationship with the local police. So there's a, there's a, it's a collaboration between us and uh, American Citizen Services, which is a consular unit, uh, a consular section. Uh, they're the ones responsible for, you know, making sure that they get uh, represented, you know, by whatever standard is the law in that, in that country. Uh, you know, that's what ACS does, make sure they're being treated humanely. We, on the other hand, are the ones that if we could pull some strings to get them out uh, and get them sent away. Or, or let me not say this. If it's a diplomat... This is what your question was about the diplomat. Yes, we are the ones to get them to get them out of there. If it's a local American, if it's an American citizen that's living there or visiting, then both uh, entities are involved. But for uh, diplomats um, engaging in that type of activity, it happens. It happens frequently in a lot of different posts, and and we're heavily involved in facilitating uh, getting them out and and um, you know processing them and generally sending them back home. I can only yeah, imagine the like drama. That. I mean, I'm sure there there are some uh, lots of you know diplomats who are 100 percent professional, but yeah, you know how it goes. I mean, there, there's an average, there's a bell curve there, and there's going to be some outliers. Yeah, you know, we said this in the Marines, and I still say it. Now, every organization has their 10 percent uh, <laughs> of of uh, I don't know if you can curse on your show, but you know, yes. you know, the 10 percent are. Uh, and, and they have them and, you know, and, and people think diplomats, you know, you're most refined individuals and listen, I was a diplomat and I'm not refined. So there's, there's, you got those, they got some guys that are diplomats that are, you know, contract construction workers, you know, they, they fall, they have diplomatic status. Uh, you know, there's different levels of diplomatic status. You have what uh, a regular full fledged diplomatic ha- status. Then you have what's called, uh, you know, there's a, a technical status and then there's consular status. And all are, are higher. All are they're, they're kind of uh, you know your full status, uh, diplomatic status at an embassy is is uh, the highest you can have. And if you're at a consular facility, as I was in Ho Chi Minh City, it's a lot more limited. And then it's based on your position as well. And you can have so as a young Marine, technically I was on a diplomatic status, but it was not as um, as, uh, as as helpful, I would say, as a, a full fledged diplomat. Um, and what I'm getting at is. You know, young Marines are out there uh, running around at 19 years old in these foreign countries, and they get in trouble as well. Uh, so you have a whole many different levels of diplomats that are out there, you know, kind of uh, doing good things or doing bad things. You name it. Can you tell us at all about the counterintelligence side of the job and some of the threats that you had to deal with? Uh, specific threats probably probably can't, but the 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 the, the CI part. You know, I, it sounds really exciting. Uh, it's it's not like we're running uh, agents like you see in these movies, like you know what CIA does. Uh, but uh, any reports of activity uh, from individuals in the uh, in the community, in the diplomatic community, come to us. So, you know, you'll go to some of these countries, and there's just some. Uh, and I, I don't want to be too specific here, but there's some things that are going on that we know is people watching us or we, you know, we know is, is counter to what we, what should be happening. Uh, and so all those reports come to us and then we liaison, we send reports out and it goes to those agencies that can take some action or, you know, uh, you know, try to mitigate that. Now that's the first portion. So you really, uh, you kind of just, you're an investigator, you're taking in information and getting it out to the masses. 
The second part part is uh, is the the literally the counterpart is we put in you know security procedures in place to mitigate some of these uh, threats, whether it's a, a human threat, uh, a technical threat, um, or any type of other threat. Uh, that you know we 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 have security measures. And we're training specific security measures to 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 put in place to to mitigate that. Uh, that's probably the most I would could get into the CI okay. portion. I guess the other question I wanted to ask because I can see on your on your resume, I mean, you've been deployed and, and sent all over the world. Do you have any stories that are just like super weird or surreal that you're like, man, I never in the world thought I'd end up in this situation? <laughs> yeah, besides the ones I told uh, already. Uh, you know, well, some of them are surreal in a good way. Uh, I, I uh, got to fly in, in Vietnam uh, in a, a local Vietnamese helicopter doing protection for the Consul General to uh, POW MIA sites. Oh, really? Where we had, yeah, where we had, uh, you know, it's called JPAC, and I forget mm-hmm. exactly what JPAC stands for, but they recover uh, POW MIA. It's uh, and DPAA. The acronym sounds familiar. Uh but uh, yeah, so we 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 I flew out there with the consul general. We literally sit down uh, with the locals, cross-legged, drinking rice wine and <laughs> Vietnamese food at a site where an American aircraft went down. And you know, and you have these guys uh, in the military that specialize in this, um, and these these archaeologists. I think archaeologists is the term I'm looking for. But uh, they're showing you the different levels of dirt of when this year, you know, this, you know, what year this was, and, and this is where we found and. You know, the early 70s, the aircraft went down. We found a boot. We found a dog tag. We found a chit, you know, a, a note. Uh, and, uh, you know, not surreal in a bad way, but surreal in a pretty cool way. I love history. And, I, I you know, that was uh, a fantastic opportunity uh, to do that. And, you know, uh, situations in Baghdad where you're just doing protective ops and, and, uh, and all of a sudden you find yourself in front of where Saddam was hung. You know, if you saw the video saw the video where that person was standing with the phone. Yep. Uh, that's where I was standing and, and I saw the hole he fell through and, and it was so casual that the, the Iraqis that were walking us through and I had my, my ship leader then was a former SF guy, big guy. Uh, and he was, uh, and, and the Iraqis were just nonchalantly, Oh, this is where Saddam was hung. And then walking saying, you know, this is where we stacked the dead bodies in the freezer and <laughs> oh, hold up, hold up, hold up. Mike, come over here. Let me <laughs> check this out. And, uh, and I didn't get a, I didn't get a picture. I think he did. Uh, but, uh, you know, a new rule I created for myself was never go anywhere without a camera. And this is before I even had an iPhone. This was 2010. So I was behind the times and the, the embassy issued us these little Nokia phones that you had to, you know, use. And, um, what was interesting was, uh, you know, in that same surreal moment where I'm walking where Saddam was hung, and keep in mind, you know, I've been to the, I was at the courthouse so many times where Saddam was tried and, you know, with, with our people, cause they were still trying some bath loyalists out there and we would take our protectees out there. Um, but at this time, you know, we backed up our vehicles and, uh, and the guy says, uh, I said, Hey, my vehicle's good right there. You know, I'll make sure I don't tell my team they're good to go. And he said, Oh yeah, those are just Al Qaeda and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, like jam, uh, which is a uh, Iranian backed militia. Yeah. They're, they're, that's the prisoners there. And they're walking around just with their hands behind their back. They're not, they have nothing around their legs. They have nothing around their hands. The, the, the guards have a stick, you know, <laughs> it's like one guard to every five or six prisoners. And this guy's telling me it's just Al Qaeda and jam. And he was really worried because his mindset is bath, the bath party laws are the, are the worst. And we know 
from the Iranian backed militias attacking us, shelling us on a daily basis that that, that those are some pretty bad dudes as yeah, well. Yeah. And so of course, you know, as soon as I say that and I said it in a, in a kind of a funny way, like, oh, it's just these guys and you hear the engine start up, or you know, you gonna get out of shit out of there and park somewhere else. Uh but you know, seeing where Saddam was hung, seeing how, to me that was surreal. Again, I, I I love history. Standing at the crossroads where you, you know, before you know in the, in the early uh, Desert Storm where you see you know Saddam parading his military under the crossroads, flying mm-hmm. over the crossroads over the Euphrates doing a route recon, you know, to 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 check out the you know the AO. Um, all surreal, you know. And- and- and keep in mind, I'm a young. I was a young sergeant back in the day, and I did I did my my infantry time, and then got sent to uh, or, or volunteered to go to MSG duty. So, you know, as a sergeant, you don't have you know, or at least you know, when I was in the fleet Marine Corps, I was a, I was a lance corporal. So you know, now you know, I got out of the sergeant. All of a sudden, I'm responsible for this whole motorcade of 20 people and two helos up above, and and uh, and you know, you're slanging and banging and running around back at it's it's pretty cool. Uh, Pretty, 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 uh, pretty good responsibility and a, and, a, and, a, and a great time. And you mentioned that you are a Cajun from Louisiana. I mean, did the foreign language capability help you out at all during your job? You know, I didn't know I had foreign language capability until I started, uh, until I lived in <laughs> Moscow and I learned Russian. Uh, you know, I, 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 I tried it. My, my parents speak uh, Cajun French, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I was too young and dumb to to realize the value of it, uh, of just the, the culture down here. You know, I left now, it's been 21 years I've been gone. Uh, and I, and I just failed French in, in high school cause I didn't care. All I cared about was playing sports. Um, and, and, and then I went to Russia and I started kind of picking up the language. And then when I, I got my degree at, uh, George Mason after the Marine Corps, I was enlisted and, uh, I kind of had a knack for, for, for languages. I picked it up pretty easily. And so that did help. And then when I went to Vietnam, I, I, I the, the government, the State Department provided me, if I wanted it, a tutor, free tutor. And so I'd get, you know, I'd, I'd have her come over uh, to my office. My boss was great, you know, allowed her to come in for an hour uh, and just teach me Vietnamese and to a point where I was, I was coasting. I mean, I can't talk about politics or nuclear weapons with people, but I can talk about family and, and going out and drinking beer and having a good time and do just about anything else I wanted in Vietnamese and at one point in Russian. Um, so did it help uh, being down here? I have no idea <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if it helped, but uh, I did pick it up pretty, pretty easily. So last question, unless you have anything to add, uh, what would you say to a young man or woman out there who is maybe looking at DSS and, and thinking about trying to join and submit their application? Yeah. You know, I've had several, uh, at least probably a couple dozen people contact me and, and talk, you know, and, want to know information and I always take the phone call, uh, to talk to them. And, uh, if you want a career that has a balance between law enforcement, paramilitary style operations, uh, and diplomacy, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a great way to go. It's, it's, uh, they, they generally say we're a jack of all trades cause you can, you're trained to do all of it. Um, and there's so many opportunities out there to get involved in any of that. Um, you know, if you're looking for strict law enforcement and investigations and kicking down doors, uh, you know, DS is not the place to go, but if you're looking for, uh, uh, some versatility and you you want, you get bored doing one thing for several years, you want to travel, uh, um, uh, whether, whether with 
without your family, without a family, whether single or with a family, uh, the State Department uh, is, is a great place to go. Diplomatic Security is a, is a fantastic organization. Um, I wish I didn't have to leave, but I, I, I uh, chose to uh, start a family out in San Diego and being a dad is my new mission. Awesome. Um, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, it's just a fantastic career and, and, um, you know, I would encourage anyone that's interested in those things to, 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 to pursue it and, and to be aggressive in pursuing it. It took me three tries again. It takes some guys that are, uh, much more experienced, uh, uh, th- than I was four or five times to get in. Just, you know, just keep at it. If you do, if you are in the process, keep trying, keep pushing and eventually it'll, you'll get through, it'll work out. And they can go and read your book, Agent Unknown, which is going to give you an inside view of what it's like to work in DSS. Absolutely, yeah. Agent Unknown, it's, it's available um, uh, on Amazon. It's got, uh, I think I have 49 reviews, all four and five star. Uh, I edit it myself. I am Cajun, so uh, you know I always joke around and <laughs> skew the grammar. But I uh, uh, haven't had too many complaints on, on, in that regard. But it is a, it is a good book uh, as you mentioned in the beginning there are not many books written on it um and what I, the feedback i've been getting from active agents and former agents both at the, the mid-level and senior level are that it's a it's a great kind of on the ground experience of of what you experience as a mid-level as, a, as an agent coming in and, and mid-level the, the books that had been written were uh, were uh, uh by retired agents who no doubt had a ton of experience and, and talked about their experiences but um you know, this day and age, the guys and girls coming in are, are a lot of them are, are, are Iraq War ver- veterans, Afghanistan, you know, OIF, OEF veterans, and um, and I think I, I talk the, the talk the way they do, and it's you know, there's humor in it, there's sarcasm in it, there's uh, a little bit of everything I think for everyone. Really easy to read. I'm not a reader. I'm not a writer by trade. Um, so yeah, they can learn about it. again. It's on Amazon, uh, Agents Unknown. Just type it in, it'll, it'll pop up, and uh, yeah. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Cody. Uh, before we go, is there anything else you want to add? Anything you think I, I failed to cover? No, I think you covered it all. Great questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity uh, to come on. Um, it was uh, uh, a, a, uh, a when I got notified and asked, and I, of course I said, hell yeah, I'll do it. You know, um, uh, So really thankful uh, that you guys took the time to talk to me and, and um grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, Cody. I mean, this was a very unique opportunity for us as well, because we interviewed tons and tons of people, veterans and and so on, but you're the first guy from DSS. So this is a first, and I think the listeners will really get a kick out of this interview. Awesome guys. Uh, I look, I look forward to, uh, to, to listen to, to hear if people can, can understand my Cajun slur. No, uh, no, it sound, you sound very good. Barely even noticeable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, awesome. Well, thanks guys. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Cody. Take care, man. Yes, sir. Y'all do the same. That was Cody Perron, former Marine and DSS agent. The book is Agent Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. First thing, you asked him, Cody, give the uh, elevator pitch. I mean, you didn't use elevator pitch, and I'm glad you didn't because he didn't give it. To describe what a DSS agent is, that was half the interview, I feel like. He was... Yeah, yeah, because they have a lot of responsibilities, and you know, I, I feel like, and that's why I asked them. I feel like the average Joe out there just has no idea what DSS is. I mean, what I they do. Um, so it's good to get get uh, you know an actual veteran of the unit uh, or of the organization to say in their own words what they do, which he did an incredible job. Cajun accent be damned. It really wasn't. I, as bad. I couldn't notice. No, if. I mean, he had said when I was uh, emailing back and forth with him, he said, oh, I'm out in San Diego, but I'll be visiting family in 
Louisiana, you're not thinking like, oh, okay, like, and then before we had him on, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm Cajun, like, crawfish boils and whatnot, and it's like, okay, I mean. It's amazing listening to Cajun people talk to each other. They are probably, I mean, within America, I feel like Cajuns are, like, you, you know, you got the Southern drawl, you got, uh, like, people from Boston, like, it's different like, dialects. It's like a totally separate culture. Cajun is just a yeah. whole different animal. Yeah, and you listen to them talk to each other, and you're like, I have not a single idea what you're saying. Like, I can piece together, yeah. I mean, I, we're from New York, we, we probably sound different to a lot of the people across the country listening. Uh, Cajuns, uh, you know, you, you're basically, you're speaking Cajun. You're not speaking English, like, you're speaking Cajun, and... Good luck figuring out. You, you know who else uh, grew up, uh, grown up Cajun? I feel like that's a uh, TV show or something For like sure. that. For uh, sure. George Hand, uh, okay. who we've had on a bunch of times. He, uh, he's from down there. And I, I, it's curious because, you know, it's almost like people that want to be actors and stuff like that. You want to get rid of your accent. You want like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a um, Americana voice, like a Tom Brokaw. You couldn't, yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. don't, you want to know where he's from. I feel like Cajun people say screw it. Like I'm, I'm leaning into it even more. Like ah, oh, crawl. I mean, I'm not going to insult the the Cajun folk right now, but you get what I'm saying. Like they, they heavily lean into their accent. Yeah, no man, be proud. The only people who need to minimize their accent are people from Staten Island. They just need to stop. They're the only people. They're the only people. See, because I stop. I'm going to say Boston. I'm throwing. Bo- oh, because the, Bostonians the, the, that 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 Harvard Yard, like get it, and then they were like, ah, Goodwill Hunting and. We're going to go Matt beat up Damon. some smart kids. Yeah, like, all right, they can tone it down. But, yeah, Staten Island, great call. That is... Yeah, um, yeah. Accents are, are fascinating. That's... <laughs> <laughs> and Cody's wasn't even that bad. He no, was no. He was concerned. Oh, I hope I, you guys I, can understand I couldn't, I couldn't notice. I never would have suspected if he had an... No, I, would, I mean, I would have guessed from the South, but I wouldn't have been able to, like, pinpoint, you know, the, the backwoods of Louisiana. Nah, but that, that was a great interview. I, I think uh, I think the listeners are going to enjoy it. And like you said, it was our, he was our first... Uh, our first DSS agent. And the cool thing for me is like, you know, you're doing all this diplomatic stuff. So, you know, a lot of these guys that we have on, you know, they've been in battles for militaristic reasons, but you know, these guys, like he said, when he was talking about the, um, where was, where was the place he was fighting on? Uh, or Brill or bill or bill. Yeah. How, you know, you get this email at 2 AM and all the first and like you know, thirty eight people and it's like well now we we're also responsible for one hundred and fifty and you see all the taillights heading in the opposite direction it's like oh yeah like that's shit. an oh shit moment yeah, like yeah. you're you're looking you're it, it's almost like twister like you you see the storm coming you're like I've, I know exactly I've seen what's going that on. Uh, that consulate in Erbil it's a pretty big compound surrounded by like high cement walls and the thing too is I uh, I mean he didn't really say much of it other than you've just got to you know you you try and calm everybody else but. There is a fine line between like letting people know and not telling them too much because, you, like he said, you don't want to scare them. Yeah, yeah. God knows, like you know, they start running out there. They who knows what they're you know, you know nobody can react. You guys are trained to do that. As a civilian, if somebody like you know if if you're taking me somewhere and I mean I'm not a diplomat, but like you're taking me somewhere and you're like, hey, listen, man, uh, shit's about to hit the fan. You'd, you'd like to think in that moment, you're going to be like, all right, you guys got my back. Like, I'll follow what you need. But you don't know that until until you're in it. I'd be super horrible at that part of the job. I'd just be completely blunt about it. Just like, <laughs> I, see, I can imagine. I would appreciate that. Like, looking at some like State Department employee, like some like 35-year-old woman with like a graduate degree. Like, listen, honey, <laughs> we're all going to die tonight. You know that, right? You, oh, man, that would be, she would have to know you're, 
I'm not going to say sarcastic because that's obviously a very real possibility, but just the fact like you would have to appreciate the bluntness of that. Like some guys got to be like, look, don't sugarcoat it. Like, what are we in for? And then he, that's when they call in. That's when they call in Jack Murphy. Like, no, well, tell it to me straight. Well, I mean, very rarely do, does um, DSS really get into those kind of dust ups. Like Benghazi was one of those. Right. But for the most part, it seems like they do a pretty good job of you know keeping their the State Department employees out of trouble. And he's, I mean, even some of the cooler aspects, like he was talking about. I mean, it's not cool, but like the Saddam thing, it's historical. Like you got to visit that the the Vietnam in the in the cop in the helicopter, like being a part of. Uh, of just history where that opportunity might not have been provided elsewhere. Like yeah. it's just, it's, it was, it's a cool, um, part that, that maybe, a lot, I mean, I certainly didn't know a lot about it. So I feel like the listeners will absolutely get. Yeah. Yeah. And more than that, I mean, I think the cool thing, well, I hope it, the cool thing is that this podcast interviews so many of these different people that if you're to like, if you're one of the hardcores and there are a few out there who have listened to sure. all four, 464 episodes, you hear Tom Pacora talking about doing security for the CIA. You hear Cody talking about doing security for the State Department. And you start to like put the, put the pieces together about how our government actually functions, which is you know a, a big black hole for a lot of people. They don't understand yeah, absolutely. All, all these different military units. You know, We had a guy on uh, recently who walked us through how Marine Recon works. A lot of people just don't know. You know? So if you listen to all of these episodes, you're able to kind of put that together. And that's the nice thing with the guests we have is that most of them are eager. Like they, you know, uh, Cody was very excited to come on through email every time. Yeah. Every time I talked to him, he was, he was like, yo, look, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to do this. And that's the thing. Cause I feel like a lot of people, not necessarily their story, but the branch that they're associated yeah, 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 with, yeah. like there's a lot of, like, as you just said, it's a black hole for, I mean, for me, certainly. So anybody we get on is awesome because I am the farthest thing from a military nerd and it's just, at the end of the day, we're people. Like these, these guys are are down to earth. Like they they just want to tell, yeah, get get the information out there in, in whatever form you can. And I mean, you you do an excellent and, job conversing with these guys. And Cody was a listener request and another listener request on Thursday for our Thursday podcast. Should I tease that one out? I mean, you just did, so you might as well finish the tease. Uh, Ed Morales. As a, uh, a former FBI agent who was involved in the 1986 Miami shootout, which was it was a pretty big game changer as far as weapons and tactics, and a lot of things came out of that. And uh, Ed's story is like beyond hardcore. Like he got he got shot yeah. a couple times, and then he took out two bank robbers. Like he, he, hardcore, hardcore dude. I just the name Ed Morales. Like he just, it just you picture just like a t- like a tough. Son of a bitch! You just like I, I can envision what he looks like, and then when you, when you do see, you're like, okay, he fits the bill. Uh, yeah, he'll he'll tell you, and I mean, I'm sure he will. You'll hear it him on the next podcast, but I mean, he'll tell you, yeah, I, I did what I had to do in the moment. But yeah, he's a he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. You can tell. Yeah, and those are the one like <laughs> you're like, all right, I, I appreciate the humble, but like, come on, let us in. Like, what you know, what's going through your head? You're just thinking at some point, especially when you're getting, you know hit by bullets like adrenaline just takes over and all of a sudden you know you just hulk up and you know before before we close out there's one one story on that that i'll tell just kind of a personal story okay uh when i was in the philippines i was interviewing a lot of their special operations guys i sat down and had an interview with uh, a gentleman named uh ted yamas 
Ted Yamas was a uh, colonel in the Philippine military, and he was, the, he was a scout ranger, and he was also the commander of the Light Reaction Regiment, which is like their version of Delta Force. It's their okay. counterterrorism unit. And um, we talked all about his career, and we talked a lot about the battle uh, for Zamboanga, where it was like the entire city was under siege. Oh, and he went in there, and he was a very, very understated guy. Very, very nice guy. You could tell he's like a genuinely nice guy. Has kind of a sense of humor, and we have a conversation back and forth. And I just came away with it with a really positive impression about him. Um, and but he, he'll tell you, yeah, you know, my job was kind of coordinating the ground forces and making sure we had a unified front and we were pushing against the enemy here and there. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, Ted, thank you. And uh, over the next couple weeks. I interviewed a couple of his boys, a couple of the guys who are young lieutenants in and that, his and in that's his where the unit. truth comes out. And that's where that well, that's where the rest of the story oh, sure, came man, out. Yeah, not the truth, but and the the rest of the story is that Ted was right there in the thick of it, running and gunning in the middle of combat with his boys. This is a colonel, a full bird colonel. And one of his guys, who was one of his junior officers, was like, the whole time, I was just like, oh, my God, this is a full bird colonel. How do I keep him alive through this? Yeah. <laughs> and he said that he was telling me Ted would get up there. They'd be in combat with the enemy. Ted would see a building in the middle of the battle space, be like, I want to set up my talk right there. Let's take that building. And they'd go and take it by force, and he'd set up his talk in combat, and they would start running their campaign. And Jeez. this is stuff that Ted did not tell me at all. Like yeah, no, I mean, nothing, nothing about any of this. But when I talked to his junior officers, they were like, you interviewed Ted Yamas? They're like, that guy's the real McCoy. He's the real deal. And it was just incredible to see the, the way these junior officers regarded Ted. It wasn't just respect. It was with love. They loved him. Yeah, I mean, especially for a colonel, like – you're you're in there you're side by side there's you have no other choice but to respect that you can't yeah. like you see that and you're like this guy's got our back like yeah 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 to, to the definition of of and soldiers will do anything for a guy like that of course who's like out out front you know, yeah leading anything. leading by example yeah. and, like, and that's something that i feel has really been lost in the u.s military and and you know, the, the, the U.S. military answer would be like, well, if a colonel has to shoot his gun and he, if he's up in combat, that's the wrong answer. You know, he needs to be back co doing coordinations and stuff like that. I mean, there's definitely a balance to be found, but I, I feel like the military has lost a lot of, like, the hands-on leadership. I can. I mean, you look at, if you want to go all the way back to, like, George Washington, like, he was out there on the forefront. Like, yeah, yeah. At what point did we veer away from that where... You know, like you, I feel like most people don't get in the military. I'm not going to say to not become a colonel, but like you don't want to be. You want the hands-on stuff at, at first, at least. Some like that, people do. And some I mean, don't. yes, certainly some do. But like at the end of the day, you you want that that brotherhood. Like, look, man, I got your back, you got mine. Like, let's get this done. I mean, well, I, I could be way out of line here. I, I think I, so. I just think that sometimes you know our officers want to run their their units by email, and it just doesn't. Which is a shame. It that, doesn't work in. The, the troops will not really respect that. Like, like to them, the colonel at that point, the colonel is just a bureaucrat, and no one really cares what they think about anything. Yeah, yeah. And the, oof, if you got no morale, good luck getting anything done. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think there's something to be said for that kind of hands-on, um, you know, personal relationship with between uh, the officers and their men. But that's that's my opinion. That's one man's opinion. Uh, before we wrap up, just got an email from Cody. This is like, 
hot off the press. He did. He said he forgot to mention uh, his Facebook and Instagram account. Okay. So I'll be there. happy to. I'm happy to plug it. So Cody, when you, if you listen, if you're only listening to your half of the interview, that's very selfish, man. Just listen to the, <laughs> listen to the whole show. Uh, but for the uh, for the fans of the show, Cody's Facebook and Instagram account is at Agents Unknown. So. It's also his Twitter account, so really pumps the book. It's going to be a great. Uh, it came out last year. The book did. Uh, be sure to get that. Agents unknown. Cody Perron, great interview. And before we wrap, I have to do some ad reads so we can get paid. So hope you guys don't mind. Be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. All tier crates are available at CrateClub.us. And right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of twenty percent off. For all the soft rep listeners, that's you guys. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know exactly how long we're going to keep the promotion, so if I were you, I'd get on it right now. That's CrateClub.us. The coupon code is SOFTREP for 20% off your subscription for all crates. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder to you, the listener, now is the time to sign up for Spec Ops Channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com. Take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at the News Rep, you've got to get on board. There's expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like Jack Murphy, the man to my left, Stavros, and the many guest writers who pop in as well. You'll get unlimited access to NewsRep on any device, unlimited access to the app, and you get to join the War Room community. There's invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, if you're not aware, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com, where you can see our full archive of shows. As always, keep up with us on social media at SoftRep Radio as well. And with that, Cody, great interview. We have Ed coming up Thursday. Um, another episode 464 in the books. We are we're moving along. I feel. I feel strong with the chemistry. It's it, coming. It, hopefully. Uh, we. I want to send... We got an email, um, just briefly. I want to continue this because episode 500 is coming up quick. The email is softrep.radio at softrep.com. We, I was already getting... I've gotten a couple suggestions for liquors for the 500th episode. Okay. I want f- fans... However you want to reach out, do it, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, or the email we just provided. Reach out because... Jack and I would love to. I don't want to speak for you, but it sounds like we're gonna we're gonna enjoy the 500th. I would love to. Yeah, yeah. So any suggestions are welcomed. Uh, continue to listen to the show, subscribe, give us a review, anything at all. We would greatly appreciate the feedback. And don't forget to buy Murphy's Law while we're here. Murphy's Law in bookstores now. Yeah. Or uh, do you have it in ebook form? What's it, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, ebook. Audiobook. Audiobook. It's out there. It's all out there. You can listen. I mean, if you can't get enough of Jack's voice, buy the book. You can listen to him there, too. My silky smooth voice. Mm, Thanks for listening. Episode 464. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.
New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.